Hey, um, good morning, everybody. I'm going to ask that the junior high and high school, uh, or the junior high stays for a little bit, because I, I have a really cool thing I want to share with you, and, and it has nothing to do with my um, leg injury that maybe you heard about, so I'm going to sit with you this morning. Um, I, I hobbled onto the stage here this morning because I had a very non-heroic surfing accident where I blew out my calf muscle. And, um, and in, in reading about that, I, I learned that it's fairly common for those who are close to celebrating the 11th anniversary of their 39th birthday. So um, that was a little humbling. But then I read, too, that Patrick Mahomes, young quarterback, had the same injury. So I took great pride in that. So I'm identifying more with the Patrick side than I am with the other. But, but anyways, this morning, I'm, I'm glad to be here. And, um, and I'm praising God. And it's really not that big of a deal. These things shall pass. Um, but I have some family business to update you on. And this is some really exciting stuff that I, I've been looking forward to sharing with you. And, um, and for those of you that are, are visiting with us this morning, uh, I want to give you a little context to what I'm going uh, to share. And just to, to let you know, there's nothing like, if, if anyone's like, is there something big happening? Yeah, something huge happening. Like God's faithfulness continues to pour out and shower down upon us. That's the big thing that's happening. So just some context. Okay, so um, several months ago, we, we, uh, we came to the congregation. If you're a visitor, I'm just wanting to bring you up to speed. Um, or if you're newer to the church. We came to the congregation with this really amazing miracle that only God can do, right? So the miracle was this, that a very generous donor um, donated $2.3 million to the church, right? Like, it was, what? You know, so when that happened... When that happened, you know, we, you're just like in shock, right? And what we did as a result is we, we sat on that for a while. Our leadership, our pastors and our deacons, we sat together, we prayed, we asked the Lord what we're, what we're to do with it. Um, when God provides like that, it's not the equivalent to winning the lottery. I just want you to know that. It's not like, whoa, cool, bunch of money. You know, that, that what, what we are um, as, as leaders and as leadership and those in the, in the body of Christ, everything God's given us is resource that he entrusts to us. We know that, right? And so it's just a tool for God's glory. And so we began to pray, and through our prayer, um, we, we kind of came to the very obvious conclusion, and this is where the miracle part of it came in for us, is that we owed $2.3 million on a construction loan, and that was the exact amount God gave us. So what do you think God wanted us to do with that? Any, any, uh, so we, 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 but we still prayed about it, because you, know, you, can, you have logic, and, and God gives us a brain to use, but you want to seek him and make sure you're walking in his ways. And so we decided that we were, we were to, to pay off the building. And you all remember, man, we paid it off for a second time in some of your histories here, and we celebrated well. Do you guys remember? I mean, it was awesome, right? We just declared like a season of jubilee. We had a massive banner here that was a reminder of the Old Testament promise of God of the season where debts get canceled. And then it became like these growing, um, exciting testimonies from your lives of like jubilee that was happening in your personal lives. And we shared those testimonies and it was beautiful and it was awesome. And I believe we're still very much still in that season. One of the things that I'm not sure, and this is in, this is, uh, important context for what I'm about to tell you, but one of the things that I'm not sure that we shared with you is, 
um, out of any, any income that the church receives, we follow the principle of tithing as well. So basically, anything that the church receives, we give 10% away. So you can imagine how, and, and the stipulation of what we give doesn't benefit Bridge, it benefits the kingdom. So it's to kingdom work outside of us. That means missionaries and other organizations that are doing great work for God. And so you can imagine the joy in our hearts as we seek the Lord to go, who, who, who are the people that we give this this. For us, this like wind, this overflowing amount of two hundred and thirty thousand dollars, right? Do the math on ten percent. That's amazing. But but in that, it was a little bit of a temptation. I have to admit that you see this two point three million dollar gift and this two point three million dollar need, and that required us to say we're going to tithe, and that's going to dip in to our um, uh, what do you call that? The the savings, right? So it was a decision that was made, and I don't regret it in, in any way, shape, or form. And so it, it's been a joy over these past months to be giving some of that into different ministries. And I'll get into the details of that when we have our annual business meeting. It'll hopefully be uh, uh, some, some draw to get you to come and listen to that. But, um, but so fast forward now. So that's the context. So fast forward. Um, I don't know how else to say it, so I'm just going to say it. Somebody else gave us $1.2 million. Yeah. I'm sharing real numbers and real story just because that's there's no other way to do it, right? And I don't even know what to say. Like, you have to know, okay, and you're here, you know, we've never once done a fundraising campaign. We've never once said, hey, we got some needs and we'd love for you to, to um, give. And I'm, by the way, I am not against that. Initially in our building project we did, we asked you to give to it and you did so faithfully. I'm not against that. I'm just telling you, we weren't doing any of that. And so to, to get this, um, I remember so, like it was yesterday, Lisa, was, Lisa uh, texts me and says, can you come into the office and read something? I'm like, sure. Right? Yeah. And, it, and then it was like, now. <laughs> and when Lisa says now, we do it. You know what I mean? So I came, from the, I came from the fellowship hall thinking, oh, no, you know, what went wrong, right? Like for, for me, I have a tendency to go, ah, like you just think the worst, unfortunately. And so it's a legal document. And I'm noticing like the really cool kind of crocodile tears coming down Lisa's face. And I was like, is it bad or good? She's like, could you just read it? And not in a bad way. I don't mean to ever. Lisa's the kindest, most respectful person on the planet. But she, 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 and, and then I'm like, what does it say? She's like, read it. And, <laughs> and, um, and so I, I'm like, and it's in legalese. It's an illegal document. And I'm thinking, did we get sued? Did... did did all, did, was there some kind of mistake and we really don't own the building? Like, what happened? <laughs> read it. And so I read there that we are the beneficiaries to a $1.2 million gift that was a legacy gift given by uh, a member of our church who had passed away over two years, just about two years ago. And I'll share the detail in her story of a wonderful, generous woman of God. Uh, I'm not going to do it here, but talk to me after. There's, no, there's nothing that we're keeping secret about that, but I just want to continue on with the story. And so she left this legacy gift to us of a large amount that we had no idea. Okay? That was cool. <laughs> and so we sat on that for a while. We just began to pray. It gets better. <laughs> last week on Monday, uh, excuse me, Monday, yeah, last week, Monday, um, just prior to Monday, I was given a check from a member of the congregation who gave $40,000 just no above and beyond tithes and offering, just said to general fund, $40,000. And I, I let the... Um, I let Cambria know, hey, 
um, there was a very generous check that was given to me personally. I want to make sure it comes to the church. She said, okay. And then she was um, doing her regular bookkeeping duties on Monday, and she was counting our, our offering. And she said, oh, uh, so you got that check in? And I said, no. Because we don't talk about names or anything. Everything is anonymous and confidential. And I said, no. And she goes, well, there's another one here for $40,000. So in one week, two people feel compelled without any, again, no, hey, we could use some money, whatever else. Um, here's $80,000, right? Okay. That was cool. So, no, it's, <laughs> I'm not done. I'm not done. So, so, um, so then, Tuesday, I, I have an appointment with somebody who, um, again, comes to the church, we catch up and whatever else, and she pulls out a check in her purse and say, here, I looked at the check, it was $293,000 for the church general fund. So at that one, I just looked at her and started crying. Like I literally, it was a husband and wife. I just looked at them and I just started crying. It just overwhelmed me. And what overwhelmed me is what I want to just share here, this verse of scripture that you know so well, okay? Ephesians, we can put it up on the screen. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Now to him who is able, this is a word of the Lord for some of you in this moment, because this isn't my miracle. This is our miracle. God is doing this for our family. This is what it says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God is blowing our minds. So, so now what, right? And I, I want to just, I want to share this too. And, I, and the second part, because there are these key moments when God does these things where you just are, you just sense like his, his favor, right? We sang about it. And I was like on that, after I had come in the office and that large gift was given, I, I, I asked the Lord, I, I walked out and it was like this overwhelming feeling of like, God, why? Like you, you already, I thought that was like a lifetime miracle, right? The one that, the one that I told you before, the 2.3, I thought that was like a once in a lifetime miracle. I, what is this? And I just, and maybe you'll, you'll know this when I say it, but you just sense like the smile of the father, right? It's, it's no, it's just like, those of you that are dads that you, you know, you get to do something really unexpected for your kids and you just watch them. It's just like, you know, and, and I, I, I sensed this like smile from the father and the, the, the whisper in my ear was, this is what my favor looks like started like, wow, God's favor is, has nothing to do with like, okay, so we did this, this, and this, and so now he likes us better. As we're learning through the gospel of John, his favor has everything to do with Jesus. It's just Jesus. And the father longs to give good and perfect gifts to his kids. And, and all of the things that we're enamored with at times and we're like blown away with the zeros behind numbers that equal money is just zeros to God. It's like, do you think that like, and I had to ask myself this question, was like, is $230 no big deal for God? But 2.3 is kind of like, oh, 
I guess I can swing it. <laughs> so like after 2.3 is like 1.2, like, okay, uh, here's a little more. No, like our, our concept with God, of God has to like expand to, to realize this is a huge deal for us. This is no big deal for God. And the, 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 the part of the no big deal for God is these things that are massive to us give us a glimpse of his glory. This is a glimpse of his glory. It took, it, it, God didn't exert energy to do that. He is God, and he just decided to do that for us. And I just want to celebrate his goodness. This is a passage that, out of that understanding of his favor, I, I felt like it was important to, because it, it came back to me in such a strong way. This is the, um, the, the passage that we often talk about with tithing. And what I do believe firmly is that this um, open heaven of provision for us is directly connected to the principle of tithing. I do believe that. I do believe that because I believe it's biblical. And this is what it says. Just hear this passage. You've probably heard it if you've been in church any number of years. It says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to test, the Lord says. So God invites us to, hey, see what I'll do in this. Put me to test, um, says the Lord of hosts. And this is the part that I underlined in my notes here. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you blessings until there is no more need. Sounds like what God is doing for us, does it not? Praise God, man. So I couldn't, I, I couldn't wait to share this with you. We've been sitting on it for a little while, and I'm glad we sat on it for a little while because I had no idea this last week was going to happen the way that it did. And I have no idea what the future holds, but I do know this is how the Lord is leading us. And so I want to give you the what now, okay? So I gave you the what now when I told you about the, the first 2.3 million. We had a clear-cut thing. The, the next, um, what we do now is this. Number one, we faithfully give 10% of that away too. And we can't wait to do it. We can't wait to just go, okay, God, where does this go? And we're praying into that. That is set aside to give to another organization. I want to pause just for a moment, maybe let some things settle in. But um, one of our missionaries I mentioned to you that we support in India, who um, Charles Victor, he's preached here on a number of occasions. And he does a wonderful work of mercy ministry to those that are poor and needy on the street. And there's no shortage of that where he lives. Also, um, he's starting a school for kids with special needs that would no, in no other way receive education. And he pastors a church, and in his free time, he likes to do long walks on the beach. So, um, but, but, but when, when um, uh, we had a FaceTime call, and he was so excited, he said, I want to show you what God's done. And the, this is not, again, this is just a report back, but some of the resources that I'm speaking of that we're sending out into other places, this is the fruit of it. And so if we have that video from Charles, uh, maybe, maybe you can um, show that now. Hello, Bridge family. Hope you remember this van, because in 2011, uh, you all came from the church, a uh, few of them, and you stood with us in prayer and support, and this was the answer to the prayer, and we received this van, and it ran faithfully hundreds and thousands of miles, beautiful, and uh, now God provided another two vans. <laughs> Look at this. It's look beautiful. And for the school and for the ministry. And it's really beautiful. Do you know? We thank Jesus for you. And uh, 
and for your generosity. Lots of love. Shalom. Hello, <laughs> Bridge fan. Isn't that cool? I'm not sure if you could hear all, all through the, the sounds and the audio, but the very first van you could see was kind of worn down. That was a van that you helped provide 11 years ago. And then the, the, the next two that you saw were the new vans that, that they're now able to use in ministry. One, for their school. You saw, like, how great is that to have a legit school bus? You know, it really lends credibility. And don't, don't, I'm not being silly when I say that. Like, in a developing nation, when you have the ability to show um, some, some, like, good stuff like that, it lends credibility and people begin to understand. Well, not in a developing nation. Even here, if you, if you were sending your kids to a school and someone showed up with, like, a broken-down Volkswagen bus, you'd be like, cool. No, I'm just kidding. No, but like, you, you know, you get the point. And, and then the, the, the second van that was able to be provided for as well was theirs to use for the church ministry, where out of that, they pick people up, they feed the homeless on the street and so forth. So that's, I, I just wanted to give you that real-time example because it, it came um, while I was preparing this. Um, so one, will continue to do that and more. Um, some of it we believe were to set aside. You know that we did this inside renovation and it's beautiful, but we weren't able to do the exterior stuff. We, we've, you can, if you look around the building, you can see there's some uh, maintenance that needs to take place and also some updates that we would like to do. So some we're, we're setting aside for that and believing that that's part of God's provision for good stewardship of the facility. And I feel like it's important to say that why good stewardship of the facility is important is I believe it's part of our vision that the Lord could come back tomorrow. Right now would be good. Right, like, 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 he could come back tomorrow, but we're going to be faithful until that moment. And part of the faithfulness is to have strong churches and communities that are brick and mortar that people know it's a place to go, but it's also a movement that goes out. And so we have a, a vision for uh, for generations to be able to say, "Oh yeah, I, I had my wedding there," or "Oh yeah, we used to skateboard in the back of it. We broke in at night and would ride the half pipes." Oh yeah, we went to um, you know to wood camp there, or we used to come to services there. That for for many years, that this will be a place of stability in the community. And in order to do that, the building needs to be cared for and passed on to the next generation, not as a wreck but as something like, here, let's take this thing on further to the next level. Um, And then finally, this is probably what I'm very excited about. Finally, we believe a portion of that is to be be held for something we think God wants to do internally here. And when I say something, I don't want to be mysterious. We don't know what it is. Um, We're praying, but there's a sense in all of us that there's new ministry, that there's vision that God wants to impart, um, and that will require some investment. And so we're sitting on that and sitting and and asking the Lord to show us what do you want that that would be an internal ministry that would be a blessing to this congregation as well to our community. So that's the family update. It's a pretty good one, right? I, I see some of them here, but I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge um, our deacons that are here. If you, if you all could stand. And then also, our, uh, I'm calling it our CFO team of Connie and David back there. Um, if, you, if you guys could please stand as well. We would like to just honor you. Um, I just, I want you to see faces of those that are part of the process of praying and and using wise financial stewardship. Um, I'll say this just out of full transparency, that one of the things that we discovered through this whole process, that it was time to move banks. And, and these uh, leaders worked extremely hard to find the right bank and to park that great, we didn't know that that great gift was coming, 
Um, but because of the, the, the strategic moment in which this all happened, um, we entered into a relationship with a bank that's giving us 5% interest on that money. So that is praise God from whom all blessings flow in today's moment, right? So thank you. Thank you all. Yeah, I just feel like I'm, I'm, I'm going to preach John. I can't wait to. I've been in this. But I just really feel like we need a moment to just like let all that soak in. And, and I think two ways that we can do it. One way is we can just like just start thanking God together. I mean, this is our heart's desire that we just want God to receive all glory and lead and guide us in this. I have to tell you that something out of this world is occurring in this moment that you could think like, oh, well, all this money's coming. Maybe we should back off. We are seeing such a spirit of generosity among you, not just in your regular tithes and offerings, but in relationships with one another. It's kind of like this generosity uh, competition. Like, no, no, I'll pay. No, I'll pay. Like, it's Holy Spirit, right, that you cannot outgive God. And when you begin to become generous, it creates like an, an environment of generosity. And we're seeing it with things like our men's retreat where brothers are paying for other brothers and then the brother who paid for that one wants to pay for the one who paid for them. It's just beautiful. And so thank you for that and lean into that because this is part of the quality of life that we get as believers to live completely different than the rest of the world and to watch God do what only God can do and miraculously provide for us. And so two things I think we can maybe just pause and do is one, just thank God. And two, you you might just like, if you're okay with it, um, I know it can be awkward if if maybe you're a visitor. And so if, if you don't want this, that's totally okay. But maybe just two by two, just take a moment, bless one another, pray for one another. Just ask God to continue to just pour out a spirit on one another. So let's thank them and let's bless one another. Let's be a house of prayer. Is that okay? I'll be up here while you're doing that. I want to thank you for seasons of your favor that are, are so um, obvious that only you could do this. Only you could know the financial need that we have. Only you could know what would be necessary for the future. And so we hold our, our everything, Lord, every bit of this property, every dollar that's in our accounts, Lord, all of our resources are not our own, but they belong to you. And we recognize according to your word, we're simply stewards of the good gifts that you give us. 
And so, God, I pray blessing over each one. God, I pray that whether it be a moment of abundance and contentment or a moment of need, God, I know that you know both. And, and may we be faithful in both. May we be faithful in contentment and abundance, and may we be faithful in need to trust that you're our source and that nothing is too difficult for you. So we honor you together. God, we give you glory and praise and gratitude from the deepest place of our hearts, and we stand in awe of you. Only you could pull this stuff off, God, only you. So we give you glory, and we thank you for all these things. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. 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 All right, you guys got another like 25 minutes in you? Okay, Gospel of John, chapter 2. Um, I'd like to start with this quote from Leonard Ravenhill. I don't know if you know who Leonard Ravenhill is, but he's, a, um, he's home in, in heaven now. He's graduated, but he, um, he was a British revivalist. And throughout World War II, he gathered large gatherings of, of people and shared the gospel. And many, come to, many came to faith as a result of his ministry. But he said some really strong things. And this is a strong thing that he said. Jesus did not come to the world to make bad men good. He came into the world to make dead men live. And, and we see this today in, in the miracle of, of changing the, the water into wine. And, and so if you would look at, um, at John chapter 2 and starting in verse 1. Um, and as you're turning your Bibles there or getting prepared to see it up on the screen... What you need to know about, um, about these miracles in the Gospel of John is they're, they're termed signs. Everybody say sign. They're signs. They are absolutely real miracles that really happened. But they're also signs that point to something else. And John goes to great lengths to make sure that they're called that. And there's seven of them. I did this, but I meant that. There's seven of them. <laughs> And, and in those, within those seven signs, they all speak to different things. And it's like they're culminating and leading up to this last sign, which is Lazarus' resurrection from the dead. And every single one of them has this tone of, of resurrection, of dead things living again. John is very clear that the purpose of his, of his gospel is that we might believe, and in believing, we might live, right? That, that's why he writes these things. And so this very first one, um, you could look at it at face value and, and see some awesome things. Like, wow, there was water, now there's wine, and the party goes on. And that is very true. But there's something symbolic and deeper in, in every single bit of the, every sentence in these first 12 verses. And so we're going to mine some of it this morning, and then I'm going to leave you to it. And I sure hope that, that you're, you're enjoying this type of Bible study. It can only enrich your life. It can only enrich your walk with God. And it can only strengthen your desire to worship God. Um, because the more that you dig, the more that you find. And you look, 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 and look again until looking becomes seeing. And you see such wonderful things through these, um, these, the pages of Scripture. And so there, there are probably, not probably, but they're recorded within all four Gospels, about 37 miracles that Jesus um, did while he was on earth. He did way more than that. Um, because we even read in Gospels, in the, um, and John says it, that, that you know, if we were to write all the things that, that he did, there wouldn't be enough volumes in libraries to record it. And so we know that these aren't just the only things he did, but each Gospel writer records them for a specific reason. This particular miracle is only recorded in the Gospel of John. It's, it's unique to John's Gospel, and it's the one that, that he starts with. And so um, the... I. I want to say this about miracles. Um, 
sometimes it, it, miracles can almost like offend the, the logical mind. And, and when you're reading commentaries, it's interesting that, you know, um, some commentaries or, or people's interpretation of Scripture can be really strong in, this, in the logical stuff, like um, history, for example, and context, right? And even as you, you read history and context and you get it, it's like, whoa, it, you get a deeper understanding. And it, it connects with us, like, oh, yeah, I can grasp that. But the thing about a miracle is it's beyond what you can grasp, and so the logical mind tends to want to make something supernatural natural. The logical mind wants to, to say things like, even within this miracle, like, um, well, it was probably just watered down wine. He just added water to wine, you know. Or within, like, like even the feeding of the 5,000, some would say, oh, there was probably, like, a, they had probably been storing bread and fish for a long time, because totally you could store fish for a long time back then. But, like... <laughs> But they're probably storing it for a long time. And then when the time came, they were just like giving Jesus more to put in the baskets. Like these, these are attempts to try to make something make sense to our brain. The thing about a miracle is that it violates the laws of science. The thing about a miracle is that it's supernatural. That's why it's called a miracle. And I, I listened to Skip Heitzig say something this, um, in, in talking about miracles. And I, it just stuck with me. He said, if you can accept Genesis 1, you can accept the whole thing. Genesis 1 says, in the, you know, in the beginning, um, God created, what? The heavens and the earth. That our God, with spoken word, made everything. Okay, that's like the beginning of the book. And if, if you can accept that, you can accept water turning into wine, certainly. You can, you can accept blind eyes seeing and the lame walking and dead men coming alive, right? And so I, I say that as we enter into some of these signs and maybe as you wrestle in your own lives or maybe you're searching some things out, um, there are some things that are unexplainable. And you can be fascinated with them in any direction. You know, the world provides other means for you to, to try to understand the unexplainable. But the context of Scripture gives credit to God who does supernatural things. And when you get around supernatural stuff, it can get a little bit uncomfortable. Amen? <laughs> so when, um, the, the theme of this is belief. And the theme of this first sign and the, desired, the, 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 the desire for each one of these signs is to show the glory of God. And that, or that, that people who are seeing Jesus... Because remember, he, he gave the open invitation, come and see. That they not only get to see him, but in seeing him in the, in the fullness of who he is, they see what he does and go, oh, that looks like the God who created heaven and earth. That looks like the only one who could do that kind of thing. John makes intentional effort to link John with Genesis, right? Remember the first chapter, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. This first miracle is a creative miracle, and it's a, it's a, a transformational miracle. Jesus is making something new out of something old, right? He's making something new out of something old. He's, he's creating something. And so all of these things for the ancient reader helps them to, to solidify the claim that Jesus, this Messiah, this rabbi, is not only a good man, is not only a miracle worker, is not only a prophet, all these classifications that they try to put him in, but this one is 
the Son of God. This one is God. He acts like him. So when you see Jesus, you see God. It's a huge claim. And so that's what he's doing in this part. Does any of that make sense? Would you say if it didn't? Okay. So um, the first part of this is let's just jump right into um, to chapter 2. Scott, if you could do me a huge favor and move that. I can see the clock, then I won't be here until 1 p.m. Oh, there it is. Um, little, little trick that if you ever want to get through the service sooner, just come up and set that clock uh, in a way that will make <laughs> So anyways, thank you, Scott. Um, here it is. Chapter 2, verse 1. It starts out by saying, on the third day. Does anyone think of anything when you think of the third day? Fill in the blank, right? I think of, what did Jesus do on the third day? Rose again. You see the little breadcrumbs of resurrection that are already being planted? He's doing something new. On the third day, uh, and, and by the way, that, that isn't just because we think that. that Three has that um, connection an understanding of number for the ancient world of resurrection, right? And, and so it's, it's not uh, a new idea that I just discovered or you are discovering. There's nothing brilliant in me. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. I, I, I want to stop right there for some application. And the application is this. It's always good to invite Jesus to your gatherings. It's always good. From the, one of my great joys is, is being a part of doing weddings. I've done a, a lot of them through the years. And from the very first wedding that I did, I remember saying to the couple as they came in, I said, man, your day is going to be awesome. Why? Because Jesus loves weddings. He loves weddings. He performed his first miracle at a wedding. Weddings are special to Jesus. And I'm like a broken record. I think I say that to every single couple, and I mean it every single time. There's something uh, supernatural and beautiful that happens as two lives become one. But inviting Jesus just to your wedding is probably not wise, realizing that you can make Jesus the center of every social gathering. And that doesn't mean that you have to, you know, hire the worship team to, to come and play before you have a dinner party, right? It doesn't mean you have to create a Bible study in your living room. All of those things are awesome. I'm just saying expand your understanding of what it means to invite Jesus in. Because if your only vision of Jesus is like a, a, a white dude on a, on a painting, you know, who looks more like he's from Southern California than the Middle East... Um, if that's your vision of Jesus, he could be like, or, or, or you know, whatever the icon is, you can miss the fact that he was a human just like you, that he was accused of having way too good of a time. And so that means that Jesus cares about your social life. Jesus cares about your friendships. And so if you just limit him to what happens in this building, you're missing out on an entirely wonderful um, uh, area of inviting Jesus into your life. Um, I, I think that he cares about social gatherings. I think that, that this miracle helps us to see on, on one level, Jesus is lavish. And I do believe on the simple interpretation level that the party would not have gone on if the wine had stopped. And so Jesus cared about the party and the people, and he wanted them to enjoy one another. Do you realize that? That is very spiritual, that he cares about your social lives. He enjoys that you enjoy one another. 
you know, I'm, I'm kind of at this point where I just, I mean, I've been here for a while, but like, I love when my whole family's around, or I love when there's lots of people, and I don't like to do much, but just sit there and take it in. You know what I mean? I just really love that. I love to see people having a good time. I see like, you know, my, my, my nephew's kids breaking stuff, whatever. It's just like, yeah, that's cool. I like that. You know, uh, I, I enjoy like seeing other people come into our family, you know, and seeing how everybody interacts and just like taking it all in. It brings me great joy. And I think it does because I'm created in the image of God just like you. And so understanding, invite him into your, your lives. You don't have to be plastic and weird and stop being who you are. But to, to realize he, he cares and he intentionally wants to be invited in. And I got to say, um, well, I'll, I'll get to that point later if I remember. Um, so, yeah, when you invite Jesus into your gatherings, great things happen. Um, now, this, one of the commentators that I read said something really important. He said, if we're really, to really understand this miracle, we have to understand two things. A first century wedding, and we have to understand Jesus' relationship with his mother. Right? These are two key parts to understanding this. The first part, you know, um, you've planned weddings, been a part of weddings, or, or gone to a wedding, and you see that a wedding is a big deal, right? Um, something always goes wrong at a wedding, and that's just part of the deal. Like, and, and that thing can often be redeemed. Um, I, I've seen people faint on the stage multiple times, and, um, and I always say, don't worry, just turn it into one of those video shows. Maybe you'll get a bunch of money for however that could be a blessing to you. Um, but, but no, I mean, even, even those things, it's not like the end of anything. Um, and, but, so weddings are a big deal to us, but, but they pale in comparison to what a big deal it was in the first century, in first century Judaism. So in the first century, um, in this part of the world, a wedding would go on for probably like seven days. And by the way, those weddings were the, 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 the groom and the groom's family paid for everything. So all dads with only daughters are like, let's bring it back. <laughs> let's get biblical with it. No, but the groom's family paid for everything. Um, there were a series of events and parties and, and things like that. Now, um, I don't understand how all of this works, but, but the, um, the running out of wine or not having like, enough to keep the party going well, in, in an uh, honor and shame culture was like deadly to your future. That meant for the rest of your lives, it would be like, oh, they're so-and-so. They're the ones who ran out of wine, you know? Um, it, it wasn't just like a mark on your social thing, you know, it was, it had bigger implications. There's actually historical documents that have been revived from this time period that show lawsuits of guests who sued the, um, the hosts of the party for running out of things like wine. So it could have gotten legal. So, so you can imagine that, that it was, this was not like a small thing. This was a big deal. And so um, for Jesus to be invited along with his disciples um, was, was a part of the extreme hospitality of the first century and extreme hospitality of first century Judaism. Um, I have to just take a quick little pause here. Um, I, one of my good friends, he's going to be one of our speakers at the men's retreat. Um, he's a missionary and he married a, a girl from Turkey. Her parents were second-generation missionaries, so while she was an American citizen, she really holds the Turkish culture, um, went through all their education system, had friends from Turkey. And so um, my mom, Rochelle, myself, and, and Kate was like 16 months old. We got on a plane and went to Turkey for this wedding celebration. 
And it was a, um, it was a cultural experience in that everybody was invited to this one party. And I don't know, Kate, I'm sure you remember this, but um, <laughs> there was a... What they would do, the, the tradition in Turkey was that you get the biggest speakers that you can find. I'm, ta- I'm not talking like, like, like these, right? And you put these outside, and they're going out into the community. And you just start blasting like whatever good Turkish dance music is. And it just goes out, right? And then you're, you're, the core of your friends and family are there. And you're dancing. You're doing like, you know, you should see me dance. I'm awesome. But you, you're doing like fun dancing and stuff. And there's food. But the cool thing is everywhere the speakers can be heard is an invitation. So if you can hear the music, you're welcome to the party. It's something so foreign to our concepts of extreme hospitality. And you're thinking like that could create a lot of problems. It probably could. But our experience was it was just simply beautiful what, what God did through it. So, so anyways, it was that kind of, of, um, of experience. It was that kind of wedding. And so if you jump into um, the next verse, it says, When the wine had ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no wine. And he said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Let's just pause there. How many of you moms would just go whoosh? <laughs> That's because yeah, my mom's like, yes. <laughs> That's because you're reading, and I am too, reading it through 21st century lenses being raised in the West. Okay, part of the, the challenges of, challenge of reading and studying scripture is you have to understand historical context interpretation. So the first thing that's important to know about this is this was not Jesus being disrespectful to his mom. The, the reference to him referring to her as woman wasn't like, woman? Okay, so however you envision that in your mind, you have to kind of hit erase on that for a second. Um, the challenge is there's a, it's very difficult to interpret what that is, but the best that scholars would say is that it's kind of the equivalent to ma'am, okay? It's kind of the equivalent to ma'am. And why that's important is what you're witnessing here is the change in relationship between Jesus and his mom. And it's, it's a, a sad but beautiful thing, right? What's happening is Jesus, if you, if you were to take maybe a more literal translation, Jesus is saying, ma'am, what does this have in common with me? Ma'am, what, is, what does this thing have in common with me? And what do we have in common with one another? That's the heart of the statement. Now, if you read what Mary says afterwards, you realize she wasn't being disrespected. It doesn't say Mary went away in shame and wept bitterly. It doesn't say Mary was so saddened by the harsh words of her son Feel sorry for Mary in the little um, uh, column. No, what it says, Mary says, do whatever he asks. I don't know what happened between, ma'am, what do we have in common and what does this have in common with me and do whatever he asks. But in that moment, I believe Mary made a willful decision to say, not my will, but his that, that this started out as me going to my son and saying, oh, son, fix it. And it ended with whatever he says to do, do it. If you take away anything from this message, take that away. Mary says very, Mary's, uh, I don't know what that is. Is everybody's going off? 
Is Jesus coming back? Is everything okay? Okay, good. Um, if you take anything away, take away that statement. Mary says very few actual words in the Bible, but we, and she should be honored. May, may, for sure not worshiped, for sure not made into somebody that we pray to. We understand that. But she should not be diminished. She should be honored. But the one who's honored so much has very few things to say, so those few things we should listen to, Right? Oh, it's okay. Yeah. The thing is, whatever he says to do, do it. And so that, that is the takeaway um, from that. Whatever he says to do, do it. He says this statement, my hour has not yet come. The hour that he's referring to is, is the beginning, and, th- th- and this would mark the beginning of his earthly ministry. The relationship changed. Mary goes from his birth mom to the one who also needs the salvation that he's about to bring. She goes from, I'm your mom, I take care of you, to you're my savior and I need you to save me from my own sins. Dramatic moment. Jesus is not identified from this point on as, as Mary's son. He's identified as the savior of the world. Luke chapter 2 gives indication to something Jesus says when they're trying to find him. They go, where were you? Your dad and I were so worried about you. And he says, didn't you know I needed to be about my father's business? This is the moment where he is no longer about Joseph's business nor Mary's business. He is about the father's business. He is identified as a savior. Is that, does that make it kind of clear? So it's an important um, part in the miracle. Um, the next thing, I'm just going to jump ahead as we're, we're running uh, out of time and, and um, we want to receive communion today. But in the next um, verse it says, Now there were six stone jars for the Jewish rite of purification, and each one was holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Everything in Scripture um, matters, and every detail should be looked at. Why do you think it says, fill it to the brim, or that they filled it to the brim? Not everybody at once, and why would you say anything out loud? But, but <laughs> filling it to the brim left no room for any slice of doubt that maybe they just put a couple bottles of wine in there, whatever wine they had left, and they just gave them the watered-down wine. It takes that idea away. It makes it emphatically clear that this was a transformational miracle. He turned something old into something new. It once was water, and now it's wine. And you you realize John is telling us these kinds of details, and and even if you've been a Christian your whole life, um, he's, he's inviting you to believe Right? To believe. Because as we've been saying throughout this series, there is a world out there that is whittling away at what you believe. And it's doing it intentionally and slowly, but very surgically. And so these things are important to go, okay, wait a minute. This is, this is a historical account. Something new came from something old. And it's, it is thick with symbolism beyond that. What was, what was the wine um, barrels? What, what does it, the scripture say that it was? They were these stone jars. And these stone jars were used for ceremonial washing. Right? That meant that the, the Jews were, were obsessed with, um, with cleansing and, and ceremonial washing because they wanted to be obedient and faithful to God. 
It's a slam on them. That's why there were such, so many of them and they were so big. But what scripture is helping us to see is that the ceremonial washing might clean your hands, but it cannot forgive your sins. The old covenant can't do what the new covenant is going to do. And so for those who would believe and walk in this new covenant, they, can, they would not only have clean hands, but a pure heart. They would not only have clean hands, but forgiven sins. And it was coming through the Messiah, Jesus, who does his first miracle by taking the ceremonial bends and turning them into wine, new wine, new wine. This is my body. This is my blood. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. This blood is, is a sign of the covenant, the new covenant. Are you catching this stuff? Uh, I have a, a great quote, and I would recommend this book. Um, the author's name is um, Anthony Salvaggio, and he wrote a, a wonderful book on these signs that I, I got a hold of this week. And I'll just read it to you. It says, with this sign, Jesus was declaring that he was the Messiah. That he has come to establish a new order. The pots once used for ceremonial washing of the Jews have been transformed into vessels of fruitfulness and joy. And he says, they are now filled to the brim with the wine of the dawning of the messianic age. Unlike the old covenant, which has run out of wine, the ministry of Jesus is brimming over with abundance of wine. The old has gone. That should have said old. That's my bad. The old has gone and the new has come. Wow. This is, what is, this is what is happening in this simple uh, but deeply profound miracle. As we, we jump on now to the next verse in verse 8. It says, Now he said to them, Now draw some of it out, some out, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast um, tasted the, the water, now become wine. Do you see the repetition there? Something old became something new. When he tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from. This is a really cool thing. It says he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. I camped out on that. Um, is it in this? Yeah, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Um, I camped out on that parenthesis for a second. I asked myself, why did scripture record the master of the ceremony didn't know where the wine came from, but the servants knew. Do you know what what I I, I landed on? It is really good to be the servant of the master. what, What these servants got was a backstage picture of Jesus. When you serve the master, you get a backstage pass at seeing the work of Jesus. That's why in in the kingdom, with the capital key, kingdom of God, capital K, excuse me, kingdom of God, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, what do you you aspire to? Learn to be a servant of all. You can't underestimate this role of servanthood. Servants know things. Um, I'm, I'm sure some of you have been servers. I'm sure some of you have been servers in like banquets and things like that. There's a lot that goes on when you're bringing stuff out and then you get back to the back of the kitchen. A lot of conversation. You hear a lot of things, don't you? You know things that happened with the food before you took it out. Servants know stuff, right? It's good to be a servant of God. It it is the key to being in in his sort of inner circle. And so um, we, we read on 
And it says that the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone who serves, everyone um, serves the good wine first, and then the people have drunk freely, they pour the wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this was the first sign that Jesus, um, this was the first sign Jesus at Cana of Galilee had manifested in his glory, and his disciples believed him. That's an important part. Maybe if you want to underline that in your Bible. And his disciples believed him. And then in verse 12 it says, And they went down from there to Capernaum with the mother and brothers and disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. A lot of people saw the miracle. A lot of people benefited from the miracle. Five people are recorded to believe because they saw the glory of Jesus. There's an application there for us that, that we can see a lot of things, but this sign was, um, was meant for the follower to believe. And, and maybe in your life you've, you've seen a lot of things, and you can give point to certain things, but the crossing over point for these disciples wasn't just that they saw it, but it was like they were in a progression with their faith. He's the rabbi. He speaks truth. Now we've seen him display God's glory. Now we believe. I read it and I thought, Lord, I don't ever want to be left out. I don't want to be in the crowd that sees but doesn't believe. Remember Jesus' call to us last week? Come and see. Or he says it in the ESV, come and you will see. Later, Philip says the same thing to Nathaniel. Come and see. So he has created a, a, a table before us. He's created a, um, signs for us to believe. There's history that backs it up. It, it does defy um, our, our logic because it's supernatural. But when you see it, you're forced and you're confronted with the opportunity to go, what do I do with this? I either got to believe it or I just got to just drink the wine and have a good time. I was thinking about um, so many things with this and I'm clearly running out of time, but I want to say this. The center of this miracle wasn't the wine. The center of this miracle was Jesus' glory. The wine gives a great insight into his character that he wanted to keep the party going, that he cared about the goodness of the people, but the point and the, the reason for the miracle was so that people believe. I thought about... Um, I thought about alcohol in general. You know, we talked about this last week. The Bible, and some people in denominations would say, oh, you know, it, he made grape juice. He didn't make wine. There was, no, there was no alcohol content to it. And so then the pastor's like, whew, got that one. If you read the Bible, you're going to have a really hard time finding a prohibition against drinking alcohol. It doesn't, it doesn't exist in the Bible. But what the Bible does explicitly do is limit it. Right? So it shows that for some they're permitted, and we talked about this a little bit last week. Some are permitted and free to drink it, others are not. Those who are free are restricted by limitations. That means that you, once you enter into, a, um, uh, when, once you enter into drunkenness, and, and I think for some on that spectrum who, who enjoy drinking, they have to like find that line and figure it out. And, and you know, that, I, I can't sit up here and say, well, the moment you start feeling a little lightheaded or the moment whatever, I don't know. What I do know is if the Bible is limiting it, it's wise for us to realize it is a, a substance that we have to be very careful with, right? We have to be very careful because when you bring alcohol into your life, 
if you overdo it, what you're doing is you're surrendering your will to a substance. And that should freak you out a little bit. Right? It should freak us out a little bit that we go, okay, in order to kind of like feel like I need a little liquid courage right now, you know? In order to unwind a little and feel socially, um, you know, like, okay, I want to laugh a little harder. I'm going to need to drink a little bit. And now, okay, if we really think that through, that, that should make us a little bit nervous that we would rely on a substance to do that versus relying on the center of the miracle. So what I'm trying to present to you is not uh, moralistic. Um, those who touch lips that touch wine should not touch mine, whatever that, those sayings are. Um, I'm, I'm not submitting that to you. I'm just submitting Bible to you. Super wise to make Jesus the center of your gatherings. If you follow Jesus, it is not wise to make alcohol the center of your gatherings. When that line gets crossed, you find that fellowship is not with one another and with Jesus in like pureness. Fellowship becomes a little bit like, how much really is too much? You know, can I have a little more? That was really fun. We should have more fun next time. So not a slap on the wrist, but just something to think about. It's something that, that I certainly, um, I'll tell you a quick little story since we're already running out of time. Um, when we... When we had our wedding, um, we decided not to have alcohol for a couple of reasons. One, because it's really expensive and we were broke. And, um, and so uh, one, of, um, one of my wife's coworkers at the time, she was working for the, um, the county of Orange in the, for the, um, an education. Um, I can't remember her job. Sorry, Annie. Um, anyways, this gal was like, re- she was super cool, but she was so confused. She was like, so you're not drinking at your wedding? Like, no, no, there's not going to be alcohol at the wedding. I don't know how it came up in conversation. She was like, how? how? Like, it just didn't have a, it didn't have a, a, a file in her brain. Like, it just, and it, it, she wasn't being rude or anything. She's like, how does that even work? And we're like, I don't know. Well, it'll be fun. She's like, it won't be fun. <laughs> it seriously, she was like, like, I think she was like lovingly trying to help Rochelle realize it's not, it's, dude, it's not going to be fun. Like, figure out, a, figure out the loophole, you know, and get some wine or something there. And, um, and I remember her, I think she was troubled by it. She was like, maybe I can just stop by a bar or something before. Well, hey, whatever you got to do, man. I'm, we're not like judging you. We're just saying this is what we're doing. And anyway, she ended up coming to the wedding sober and remained sober the whole time. And it was like this revelation she had. She was like, I have no idea how I had so much fun at your wedding. And how did all those people have so much fun? And so, um, so just a personal testimony that, uh, you know, you can have fun without drinking. So, and we sure, certainly did. We had a great celebration. Um, the conclusion and the application is this. That most people saw wine and few people saw his glory and believed. I want to be in the camp of those that see his glory and believe. I don't want to be enamored by the miracle as much as I want to understand the purpose of the miracle and draw near to God. The focus and the purpose, again, as I've already said, the focus and the purpose was not wine. It was the glory of God to be accessed. Like, so we could have access to the glory of God. Remember what John says, we beheld his glory. I don't want anything to get in the way of that. We beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. There's a, um, a, another quote from the author that I previously mentioned. It says, you can no more change your nature 
than, could change, than, than the water change itself into wine. You need Jesus to change you. Let me say that again. You can no more change the nature or your nature than could the water change itself into wine. You need Jesus to change you. I want to give us the opportunity to, to um, come to the Lord's table in communion today and remember this new covenant of his grace. And, and the way that we can do it is just to invite the worship team back up. And I, I genuinely mean this, that if, if I've held you too long and need to slip out, please feel no guilt or shame about doing it. I appreciate that we would take a little extra time to do this this morning. But, but as, as we come to um, this time, I'm just going to ask that we dim the lights a little bit and give us a, some space to just sit in the presence of God and soak in all, the, all that's happening today. To soak in the, the love of a Savior who didn't come just to make your bad parts good, but he came to make the dead in us come alive. Um, to soak in the, the picture of transformation that Jesus made something brand new out of something old. And sometimes we get to that point in our lives where I feel like we're just through with it. Like, we're not changing. Nothing's getting any better. We've tried everything, and we can't fix it. But John is reminding us this morning that you can't. Jesus can. You no more could change the situation in your life than that water could have just automatically turned into wine. It required Jesus. And so Jesus is here. He's, he's here with you. The evidence of his work is around you. The testimony that we shared isn't to go, wow, look at all the money that came in. The testimony is to go, wow, that was no big deal for God. Look at what he does in his glory. We didn't ask for it. I couldn't make it happen. He does these things. He wants to make things happen in your life. And what does he wait for? He waits for this key thing that was the point of the miracle. He waits for you to believe. And you're like, how much do I need to believe? And it's a great question. That Jesus said the amount that you need to believe was the smallest known seed on the planet at the time. And if you believed that much, you could probably move a mountain. What does that tell you? He's acquainted with every bit of who we are. He knows our frailties and our weaknesses. And he knows the struggle of humanity even to believe. And so he wants to lay it out and make it all so clear. But it always leads us to a place of response. What will we do with what we know? And I can't think of a better place than the place of communion to respond to the Lord. Um, to, to one, to respond to the Lord who, who not only gave, gave a way for us to have clean hands, but a way for us to have a pure heart. Communion for us today is about forgiveness. The wine, this is grape juice in, in our cups, but it's symbol, symbolic of this new wine that he's come. Without the shedding of his blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. I don't know where you're at, what you've done, or what you're struggling with, but I know the goodness of God. The goodness of God is that he wants to make dead things come alive. He doesn't want you just to wash your hands. He wants to wash your heart. And so this morning, we're going to pray. And the way that we do communion here is we do it in common. So that means that together we all kind of get up and come to the table and we can help one another, make sure that nobody's stuck in the crowd out in the back, that you get the cup, someone help with, with that, make sure no one around you is missing the elements of communion. We also do it in a way that leaves space for you, that if you're not ready for this and if it's not something that you believe in, we want you to feel no shame or awkwardness, but this is a time just to sit quietly before God. But all are welcome who believe. Everybody is welcome to the party. That's part of what this miracle was about. So if you believe, receive. Amen? Let's stand together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for all of it, Lord. The power of your word, the power of the symbolism of it. 
the warnings that are there for us and the invitations that are there for us. May you speak deeply to our hearts, Lord. Let not um, my words be um, what people hear, but the, the words of the Holy Spirit coming alive in us through your written word. Of all of it, we want to see your glory and we want to be among those who believe. Not overwhelmed by the magnitude of the miracle, but overwhelmed by the magnitude of your glory, that we have access to you, that we can be your servants. We can have backstage passes. We can know things because we're servants to the master. As they just kind of play some music quietly and leave you some space, I would encourage you just to come and, and just take the, the, the wafer, take the cup, and just hold it in your hands. We'll receive together, but please just come and hold these, these elements in your hands. these in our hands um, the, the body and the blood in just a moment um, I've asked Bill and Sarah to pray over these elements but I, I want to just tie this together with what Jesus was doing no doubt reminding his disciples of that very first miracle when he came together with them at the table near the end of his life he says when they were eating Jesus took the bread and after blessing it he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, take it, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, saying to them, drink it, all of you, listen to this, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There is not a limit to those who are invited to this table to receive salvation. 
because of Jesus. And that's where we understand even more deeply God so loved the world. Jesus' sacrifice was complete and for all people. It's not just for good people, not just for bad people. It's for dead people. That dead people could come alive. That we could, in Christ, have life and life to the fullest. I don't know if we can get a microphone over here for um, Bill and Sarah. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Andy. Lord, as we take this bread, we remember that you are the bread of life. You feed our souls, you nourish our hearts, you give us sustenance to run the race before us. As we break the bread, we feel the softness of your love for us. We smell the fragrance of your grace that you release afresh each day. We thank you with all of our hearts for the great price you paid when you were crucified on the cross for us. Let's partake in this bread. Lord, this wine reminds us that you are the giver of life. You are forgiveness. You bring deep peace to our souls and your love flows within us. As we pour out this wine, we see your sacrifice poured out for us. We notice the depth of your goodness and the pain that you suffered for us. We dwell upon the intricacy of human life and the price you paid to set humanity free. Yet just as the tombstone rolled away to unleash the risen Lord, your light shines in our hearts now extinguishing all darkness to release heaven's blessing upon us. We drink this wine now in remembrance of your life given for us. We'd like to in with this song of worship. And as we end with this song, I would, I would invite you, if you've never invited Jesus into your life and expressed your belief in him and you feel something happening as you hear the words and the claims that he makes, I would invite you to reach out to Jesus. There's a, um, another imagery that John the writer of the Gospel of John is also the author of Revelation. And in the final chapter, final book, the imagery of a, of, a, of a feast, a party in heaven that everybody's invited, that all who believe, that all who know him would be with him forever at the wedding, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And, um, and this is something that we revel in in understanding that this life isn't all that there is. Especially on bad days, man. We're just like, God, this isn't all that there is. We don't experience the good life as good as we, even a slice of how good the life is to come. 
the hope of heaven, the hope of eternity is, is not a, a, a sacred thing for a select few. It's God's heart for all of humanity through Jesus. And so, Lord, here we are, hearing your words, breaking bread, drinking the cup. And, Lord, if there be any who long to understand you and follow you, Lord, I pray that you would move on their hearts now. Even as we sing this song, Holy Spirit, come, touch lives now in Jesus' name. If you guys could lead us. among the servants who just know things. Or may we be those who listen to the profound words of Mary. Do whatever he says. Do whatever he asks. Give us the grace to do it well this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.
If I call myself in charge